I'm Sarah Amos. I'm vice president of production and development at Condé Nast Entertainment. Uh, and we are here to talk about documentary films and television. Yay! We really appreciate you guys coming out early on a Sunday. Um, we're going to start with intros. Amanda Spain. Hi, I'm Amanda Spain. <laughs> I am the VP of Longform at MSNBC Films. And I'm going to plug some projects you have coming up. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you guys have a new film, Periodical, that just debuted here. Yeah, it's playing right now, actually, at the Austin Film Center. Will it be playing again? Screening. It'll be playing on March 18th. So please go check out the website and find it. It's really great. I high, obviously, I'm biased. I highly recommend it. And, and you got to reverse here. She's wearing a fabulous uterus pin. This is a bedazzled uterus. So it'll be a hot ticket item one day. Yes, it will. Uh, and then you guys also have a six-episode series, Leguizamo Does America, that's premiering in April. Yep, Leguizamo Does America is a six-part series that premieres April 16th and will run every Sunday on MSNBC at 10 p.m. Eastern Time and will then also stream on Peacock. All of our stuff streams on Peacock. So for all of you cord cutters, which I have a feeling there are a lot of you in here, if you can't find it on MS, go to Peacock to watch it. I'm a big, I'm a big peacock person. We'll talk about it later. I love, I love me some peacock. Um, and I'm not just saying that because Amanda's on the panel. And then we have Todd Lieberman. Hello. Producer, TV, film. Oscar Emmy winning. Oscar and Emmy winning producer. Can. I can say that though. Oscar and Emmy winning producer. Um, founder of Hidden Pictures. Uh, and you guys have a new biopic series that just got announced about John Madden. Yeah, we partnered up with uh, the Madden family, um, with Tom Brady, the quarterback, with Gavin O'Connor, the writer-director, and uh, we're doing a series based on the life of the extraordinary John Madden. It's very exciting. And by the way, one thing else to plug, I will plug this one. In, in, in August, there's a movie coming out called White Bird, which is an offshoot of a movie that I made several years ago called Wonder. And it deals with one of the characters in that movie's grandmother, who's played by Helen Mirren. And it's a story, a love story of her during World War II in France. It's a beautiful film, and it comes out in August. Very lovely. Okay. Um, so it'd be silly to say we're living in a post-COVID world because we are, we are certainly not. Um, but we are three, three years post-pandemic, two years. I've lost track of time. What is time anymore? We are three years post-pandemic beginning. Theatricals starting to come back. Festivals, conferences are coming back, um, but it is it is a somewhat chaotic time in our industry. Um, a lot is changing on a minute by minute basis. Um, but I'm going to start the panel on an optimistic note. Uh, Todd, what do you see as kind of the greatest opportunity right now when it comes to documentaries and and unscripted content? Kind of what makes you excited about this frontier? Well, I'll start by saying we are still in the COVID universe because one of our panel members declined because he has COVID. So it's just the three of us now. Um, you know, documentaries and unscripted to me is a, a pretty extraordinary opportunity. And it's an opportunity to get into worlds and deal with real people. I've long been fascinated by true stories. 
um, in the scripted world and have made several movies that deal with real people and true stories. So documentaries to me and unscripted is a way to kind of take the next step into that. And what I've found, and, and, I, and by the way, I stumbled into documentaries, to be honest. I'm, I'm honored to be on this panel with two people who really do this for a living. I'm, I'm kind of a newbie. Um, and stumbled into this world, but I've found that dealing with real people and this idea of in the scripted world, you have a blueprint for something, which is the script, and then you film that and put it together, and hopefully your end product resembles pretty closely what that blueprint was, whereas in documentaries or non-scripted, it's the exact opposite. You have an idea of something and you go in and film a bunch of stuff and then you put it together later. And so kind of it's a reverse brain for me, which has been a really exciting stretch, I'll say, for me to do. And it gives us opportunity at a lower price point, frankly, to dive into worlds and stories and people that I would have never had the opportunity to do in scripted. So um, we're 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 really busy in the non-scripted right now and in going back to the optimistic point where you started i think there's tons and tons and tons of stories to tell in this arena and the price point is such that so many people can enter it and it feels like there's a pretty massive amount of audience who wants to see them so um I'm having a blast. Yeah. I often joke with my scripted colleagues that I can make twice the amount of content they can at half the time and half the money. Uh, and they don't get annoyed with me at all when I make <laughs> that joke. They're totally cool with it. Um, Amanda, I mean, MSNBC Films is super busy right now. I feel like you guys are doing a ton, which is a pretty key um, example of how strong this industry is. But what are what are you excited about right now? So first of all, I always like to tell people, I always get really nervous talking in public, so I always like to call it out immediately. So if you see my hands shaking, that's because I'm a little nervous. Um, I think I'm really, I mean, I'm really excited about the stories. I'm really excited about the filmmakers, the films they're making. You know, I'm in that really lucky position right now where I get things sent to me and almost everything I get, and I'm not just saying this is good. And the biggest problem for me is that I don't have enough space I always say that, like, I don't have enough real estate. Like, I'm, I, if I could buy more, I would, uh, which would annoy my finance team. But it would make me very happy as a seller. You should, we should talk about how you can just <laughs> be allowed to buy more. I know. Well, trust me, I'm working on it. But, yeah, I am really, I'm just, the genre has, like, I think when you think back to 20, 25 years ago, when you thought about documentaries, I think most of us thought, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, most of us thought PBS, right? We thought of, you know, Ken Burns, also who is great. I love Ken Burns. But the genre has expanded so much that it's it's in a lot of ways like narrative. There's music docs, there's uh, true crime docs, there's comedy docs, there's, you know, your verite doc, there's your essay doc. I mean, we have as many genres as narrative does now. And I think the art of the um, of the documentary has really expanded and gotten really exciting. And what the filmmakers are doing are, is really innovative. So for me, I'm just really excited to see the the art the craft keep building and expanding. And I think the more we do that, the more audience we're going to bring in, because I do think that that's part of why we have more audience now is because we as a community decided to make films that people wanted to see, not just films that they felt like they had to watch to be smart. 
Speaking of things that people feel like they want to see in, in a genre that's become huge, uh, the the concept of kind of ripped from the headlines is is a big part of our industry. Um, I will be honest, you know, Condé Nast Entertainment, a ton of what we do is based on our IP. So we have multiple series right now that are very much kind of topical news stories that we're developing. And frankly, those are often the easiest ones for me to find a buyer for. Yeah. Those are the ones that often have multiple bids. You got to get them out quick because there's a lot of them. Um how, Amanda, how do you guys at MSNBC Films think about what stories are relevant enough and important enough that those are the ones you want to jump on versus which ones feel kind of like flash in the pan moments? Okay, again, I'm, I feel very fortunate where I work because where I work, I think we're really we really care about the bigger issues, right? Yes, rip from the headlines matter, but we're really looking at films and issues and moments that are universal and sort of always happening, right? The social justice issues. I mean, unfortunately, we're still having some of the same conversations. And so we're making films that are still highlighting those things, you know, things like climate change, things like voting rights, things like uh, sexism, um, you know, those are things that unfortunately we're still talking about. And you can, yes, rip from the headlines and make that one of the stories. But what we're trying to do is take a more holistic approach where the films are can speak now or also speak 10 years from now. And we've been really fortunate to do that. Like we've had films that, you know, some we uh, premiered a film called Shouting Down Midnight, which was about Wendy Davis and her filibuster. And, you know, unfortunately, that was that was uh, 2013. Right, Christy? Was that when the filibuster happened? And it was really timely in 2022. So that wasn't a rip from the that headline was in 2013, but it really mattered in 2022. So that's what we're really trying to do is is take subjects and topics that expand time and uh, can grab an audience 2022, hopefully not 2035, but you never know. And Todd, I mean, a lot of what you guys have done is really interesting character work, kind of compelling stories. Do you do you and your team ever chase kind of the the trending topic or do you guys prefer to kind of find the more um, hidden gem type pieces? Uh, the straight answer is no, we never chase anything. <clears throat> um, and, and this has kind of been the way, again, it's just, it's my philosophy. It doesn't have to be the right philosophy, which is I don't feel like I'm all that special, meaning what intrigues me, I also believe will also intrigue, hopefully, a general audience. Uh, therefore, I kind of chase the things that really excite me and the things that I really think can translate into a larger canvas. So as an example, you know, like I said before, I kind of fell into documentaries. I've long loved documentaries. I've been a fan forever. You mentioned Ken Burns. I watched that baseball documentary that he did once a year, and that's 10 hours. Um, that was, uh, I think it was about, I want to say three years ago, where I got, this is, this is a true story. I got a DM on Twitter from the Hall of Fame basketball coach, George Carl. And he said, I want to talk to you. And I was like, great. <laughs> he coached the Cleveland Cavaliers where I'm from when I was a kid and we had season's tickets. So we got on the phone and we talked for two hours about basketball and stories. And he had all these stories he wanted to tell. And then he said, I want to do a documentary series about the ABA, the American Basketball Association, which is the rival league to the NBA in the 60s and 70s. And we started talking about it. And <clears throat> this hypothesis that 
the modern day NBA does not look the way it looks without the ABA, <clears throat> both from a societal place, from a technical place, like the three point shot, the slam dunk contest, the style, the just the individualism. And we started talking about that series. And I said, that's such a good idea. Let me introduce you to some documentary filmmakers who I know. And he said, no, I want to do it with you. And I said, I know, but I don't make documentaries. He said, but you're a storyteller, right? I said, yes. And let's do it together. And so we started and we just went out and started filming people. And we filmed Dr. J and we filmed Bob Costas and we filmed Coach Carl and we filmed all these people. And then we had 20 or 30 hours of footage that we edited down into five minutes. And I looked at that sizzle reel and I was like, holy shit, that is incredible. Now you make documentaries. Yeah. That was my first one. That's a fucking good first one. <laughs> and so that and that's I, just how it starts for everyone. Yeah, guys, get get excited. You're all going to have someone just slide into your DMs and offer you up exclusive access to an incredible Settle down, story. everybody. Settle down. The point is that story really spoke to me personally. So once we kind of made that, we started making that documentary, there were some other ones that just came up. Um as an example, I, well, now I'm loath to talk about this. No, go. I'm embarrassed now. These are dreams. This okay. is, this right, is what right. people need. I, so I went to um, I went to one of my favorite bands in the world is Def Leppard. Anyone know them? All right, Def Leppard's a cool band. Right, that wasn't a lot that of hair. Good, that good. What's that? I went to a Def Leppard concert like six months ago at SoFi in L.A. and I'm sitting in a suite, and right next to me is Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine jamming out to Def Leppard. And afterwards, I'm like, they're amazing. And I, their manager was sitting there, and he's like, you want to go meet them? I'm like, absolutely. So we went down. I went to see Def Leppard in their, in their dressing room. We started talking, and then we had lunch the next day, and then we made a deal with Def Leppard. And so now I'm doing a scripted thing with Def Leppard and also probably negotiating now on doing a documentary series. So kind of this scripted with unscripted blending two worlds is something that's really interesting to me. I will say also, while not everyone is, is, is going to get to meet their childhood heroes and immediately make documentaries, I do actually think both of those stories are great points, which is in the world of docs, I think I often meet people who are like, how do I get into docs? I, what are the, the seven steps I need to take? Um, and yes, there are certain stories where you find the IP, you identify it, you get it, you find the characters, and you move on. But most of the best docs have a story similar to yours. Can I, can I interject for one second, too, just to, to kind of make it so that this becomes a, a story anyone can relate to? And this is also true. One George Carl called me. I socialize the idea of an ABA documentary to every buyer, maybe not MSNBC, but I we weren't I, around then probably. Yeah. I, I called everybody and you know what the response was? It's period. We've seen it. It's dusty. No, thank you. That was the response to everybody. That was what inspired me to just go out and film it. Yep. And so I went out and filmed it. And then once we had the pieces together 10 months later and presented it to the buyers, every buyer was like, Oh, that's incredible. So the idea of no one wanted it to everybody want it came from the idea of us just going out and making it. And you have to be open, right? A lot of the best docs, a lot of the most interesting stories, 
they're not always going to just show up at your doorstep. You just have to like kind of be open and thinking and pulling in inspiration wherever you're finding it, not just from the pages of a of a Condé Nast publication. <laughs> um, but that so this does bring an interesting question, which is. I mean, I don't, I don't know about your guys' companies, but mine has a bit of a corporate bent at times. And so we have to do a lot of like five-year planning. And I always laugh at that because I think it's really hard to think about a five-year plan in our industry. But I am curious how you guys think about long-term strategy, supporting creativity, and the flexibility needed in an industry that is constantly upending itself. How do you balance those three things that sometimes seem very contradictory? But I think that sort of ties into your earlier question, which is about if you're trying to do things ripped from the headlines versus trying to do things that have like a longevity of life, right? So I think for us, you know, we look, I definitely plan ahead, right? I'm looking, starting to look at films for 2025. And I think part of that is when you pick films, you have to pick films that you know will still be relevant in 2025, 2026. And those are picking films around ideas or issues or just, you know, themes that you think will always have relevance. And I think that that's really important. I also think it's really important for our ecosystem. I talk a lot about the documentary ecosystem and how, you know, it's it's hard to be a documentary filmmaker. It is not one of those jobs where you're going to make a lot of money. Most of the time you're going to struggle. Most films take about six to seven years to make. Every independent film I did, it took me six years, if not longer. So this is one of those jobs that if you're getting into it, you have to get in with a really clear head. It It isn't going to make most people a sustainable living. And I think what we're working towards now in the industry is finding a space to create a better ecosystem so that independent filmmakers can still have a sustainable living. And I think part of that is like not trying to always chase things. It's like trying to make sure that we, like any job, you're creating creating an environment where it can last a long time. And that is looking at films and looking at creativity that isn't um, just a moment, right? It's just, so that for me is the most important part of the discussion right now is how do we create a space for documentary filmmakers in which they can continue to thrive and live and not just be running around from pay, like paycheck like to paycheck um, trying to survive. Because most documentary filmmakers, and I'm sure there are some of you in this room, that's like your side hustle. Like most of you are working probably hardcore jobs just so you can try to make a film. I know, I was there. So I think it's like, you know, I want to make a space where the distributors and all of us act responsibly enough so that we can create more space for more films and so that all of you can actually make a living while you're making your films. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much to add. I, I honestly think, you know, again, my the philosophy of finding stories for me has has never been about what other people want. It's never been kind of chasing what's hot and what's cool out there. I can't remember. I, I can't think of one thing that I've ever made that anyone wanted. <laughs> not one. <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding. Uh, it's really, you know, finding the reason to make something, the reason that that story is inspiring to you. And the reason that you're passionate about it, nothing, you know, to the point here, you know, these things take six, seven years. So <clears throat> nothing happens without passion. I've learned about myself that if I'm slightly below passionate, 
every single other person is better than me at it. But if I'm passionate about it, I don't think there's anyone better. And I would encourage people to find that level of passion to be able to go after what you love, not what you think other people want. I love that. Um, you mentioned, Todd, kind of the the development of both scripted and unscripted kind of almost simultaneously. How much more of that are you doing? Where do you think the opportunities are in being able to do both? How much does one sometimes blend into the other in the projects you're doing? Yeah. So to your earlier question, just about kind of where the business goes and kind of planning, we don't have a corporate five-year plan, but what we do talk about is being able to kind of open the aperture and expand storytelling. So conventionally, I've been a scripted filmmaker in movies for many, many years. And then the opportunities arise where those can turn into something else. The Fighter, a movie I made about 10 years ago, started off of a documentary. Um, It was a documentary called High on Crack Street that HBO had done, and it highlighted as one of its characters this uh, this character boxer Dickie Eklund. So that turned into a movie that we ended up making called The Fighter. And within that movie, there was a documentary crew following him around. So it was kind of like a meta idea of a movie about a documentary that has a documentary in it made off a movie. Um, did that make any sense? Did everyone catch that? <laughs> there there will be a test later. I don't know if I understood what I just said. Um, so now this idea that you know documentary world has expanded, the, the level of filmmaking has, has gotten more exceptional. You know, On the ABA thing, we're doing this documentary for Amazon, but we're also doing a podcast a supplemental podcast. So I find that if you find the right story, then at that point you can figure out the best distribution mechanism for that story. There's a documentary that we're, that we're currently uh, getting involved with uh, several groups of people. And it's about, um, it's about a serpent church in West Virginia, which is those who pray to snakes. Um, And that, Huh? Like the Pentecostals? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's the last remaining serpent church in the country, basically. Um, so there's a documentary that we're talking about making with that, but there's also scripted ideas that can come from that. It's kind of like um, uh, succession in the world of serpent church. And so... I'm, we're gonna we're gonna talk so much more about that once that like I've I've I that that only brought so many more questions. But continue. Wonderful. Um, So now we're looking at stories that can have like offshoots of this is a great foundation that that lives on its own, but it also can be this, it also can be this, it also can be this with supplemental podcasts. So kind of the world of storytelling, I really think, is expanded and the opportunities have too. Yeah, I think, you know, at Condé, we, I have the benefit of not only having scripted colleagues, but podcast colleagues. So we have podcasts that I've turned into docu-series that then they find that special character and suddenly they're doing a script about them um, or the way to get sometimes a person excited about a doc project is to be like, oh, by the way, also meet my scripted colleagues. Because there's a lot of people who may not want to be in a documentary until they understand that the documentary could suddenly open up a whole new world to suddenly Jessica Chastain playing them in a, in a scripted series down the road. So like there, there are lots of ways to use one side of the business to help the other. And I do think it's exciting. I feel like even five years ago, if you wanted to do one, you couldn't do the other people. Oh, it's going to cannibalize it. And oh, it's going to ruin. And now I feel like, Buyers, everyone is very open to the idea of of both can live simultaneously. There was a documentary that was made. I, I believe it won the Oscar. You can 
you can fact check me on this. In 1973, it was a documentary called Marjo. Someone Google that. Um, about Marjo Gortner, who was, speaking of Pentecostal, he was the youngest Pentecostal preacher. He was marrying people at like the age of three. And this documentary followed him around. <clears throat> um, and he had the documentary crew follow him around because he wanted to showcase what goes on behind the scenes so that he never could ever go back to preaching again. It was kind of like a, here's what really happens and here's where the money goes. So we saw this documentary and I sought out Marjo himself and saying, I want to take that documentary and I want to make a scripted movie about it. And to your point of, well, who would play me became a big part of that conversation, which enabled uh, the, the deal to go through. Who did he want to play I him? I can't say. Oh. Um, we're heading towards an election year. Uh, we are? We, we are. Oh, yeah, we're heading towards we're, a big we're, election we're, year. We're, we're barely <laughs> towards an election year. Yeah. Um, I definitely, as a, as, a, as a seller of content, I hear a lot from buyers. Oh, well, that feels too political. Oh, well, that's that's going to alienate part of an audience. Oh, well, we're, we're trying to reach the largest audience possible. Um, MSNBC films. Thank God you are not, you are not the home that says that. That is like the opposite of what I say. I'm like the more political, the conversation, the better. Why do you think Amanda, like what, 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 what do buyers need to think about in terms of how they can still get political projects over a finish line. What what are the smart things filmmakers should be thinking about? Well, I think that I think that most buyers and I, I don't really know why they haven't caught onto this yet. Um, everyone's having political conversations. You know, it, back in the day, we didn't talk politics. I mean, when I was growing up, I grew up in small town Texas near the Gulf Coast. People kind of talked politics, you know, sometimes like I was a liberal growing up in a conservative community. I had a few pretty good debates, but now everybody is talking politics. There's not, you don't go anywhere where you don't hear people talking about these things. So I think we might as well just keep having these conversations because it's actually the only way that things are going to get better is if we all keep having really tough conversations. And documentary films is the best place to do that. We take on the topics that are really hard to discuss. You know, we have a film coming out. It's a short film called The Recall Reframed. And it looks at the Brock Turner sentence. I don't know if you guys remember Brock Turner, but he was sentenced to like six months for raping a girl in, uh, in California. And this looks, and the judge was recalled. And this film looks at the fact that that recall of the judge, which a lot of feminists wanted to have happen because they were like, that's too, that's too short. The six months for rape. That's crazy. Right. I think a lot of us felt that way, but what ended up happening is because of the recall of that judge, it could have led to higher incarceration rates of black and Brown people because other judges didn't want to see light on crime. So this film takes this sort of really different take on that case. And for me, when I watched it, I was like, oh, I had never thought about it that way. You know, and I think that it's a really tough conversation to have about, you know, rape and feminism and all of these things. But documentary films are willing to have it. And I think these are conversations that we have to have. And it's especially going into an election year where, you know, as I think you all know now, your votes really matter. And so we have to have these really tough conversations. And, you know, documentaries are the best place to do it. Todd, how do you guys think about political topics or or kind of more divisive 
um, things that you might want to tackle in, in projects since so much of what you're doing is passion. Like, is- yeah. Um, <clears throat> I totally agree with you that documentaries is such a great way to express very difficult and challenging things to talk about as a storyteller. My feeling has always been, um, I like people to leave an experience that I had something to do with feeling better than they did when they started the experience. And that doesn't necessarily line up with, con- uh, with um, tough subjects. Uh, so I look at entertainment a lot as, you know, how do, I, how do I present something that you might learn something, you might feel, but, you, but it's a little bit of an escape. So I can't say that I'm necessarily chasing political or divisive uh, topics. That said, if there's something that comes my way that I do feel passionate about, that I feel like I really, really want to explore and get into, I wouldn't turn it away for that reason. But I'm certainly not seeking them out. But I also think you can make those docs and make them entertaining. Yes. And I think that that is something we focus on a lot, and I'm sure you do too. It's like, you know, making sure that – because if nobody watches it, it doesn't matter what you're saying. So, you know, we, we really try to make these docs. Like we have a film here called Periodical that we were talking about, which is about the power of the period and destigmatizing menstruation. You know, most women bleed, if not all of them, and non-binary people bleed, and we should be able to talk about that. And it shouldn't be shameful. But the film is super fun. The film is like a ride. And it takes a really taboo subjects and make it really fun and entertaining. And I think that that's the, I think that's the way to make films that are sometimes hard to watch. I don't think that's the only way you can make films. I do like to feel good when I leave a film. But I also know that sometimes if I feel a little bad, that's good too. Because maybe I heard something I needed to hear and learn and be better about. So... But normally, I like to leave laughing. Yeah, and again, it's, it's it's just purely a taste thing. Like you know, I'm, there there's a whole business out not to compare political movies to horror films, but there's a whole business out there of slasher well, films. I know that's not my taste. I'm yeah. not good at them. Um, so I know what I'm good at, and I know that other people are really good at other things too, and they both can coexist. There's a movie that we're that we're making right now. It's kind of a called a secret documentary. It okay. takes place in the in Watts. We're doing it with uh, Suzanne Malvo, and it's it's pretty hardcore, but also there's an extraordinary amount of joy in it. So our challenge with that movie will be presenting a community that's real, but also has hope in it. Yeah, we're working on a documentary right now all about critical race theory, mm-hmm. which I think can slip very quickly into sound bites of people screaming at each other. Yeah. But we're working with a filmmaker named um, C.J. Hunt and Darcy McKinnon. They made a film called The Neutral Ground, which I highly recommend people check out. It's almost as if if you took The Daily Show and you did it as verite filmmaking. Um, and the last one looked at Confederate monuments. And the joke we have when we're talking to people about this one is this is the sequel they didn't want to have to make because the neutral ground now can't be shown in over 13 states because of critical race theory. Um, but it is, inter- it is entertaining. You watch, you watch our sizzle, you watch the materials we put together, you talk to CJ, and you come away laughing for most of it. And then an hour later, you realize, oh, fuck. Florida is essentially just burning books. 
Um, and then you're angry and then you want to do something. And that, frankly, that is the way I, I like to talk about these types of issues. I want to get someone laughing first and then have it stick with them in a way that an hour later they, they put two and two together and they're like, oh, we should, we should probably do something about this. That's the sweet spot right there. I think that's the perfect spot is where you can get people, get them in entertain them for a hot second and then then later have the really intense conversation i like to bookend it too like have the fun hilarity up top get real serious sad cry in the middle and then bring it home with maybe a little lighter you know tone just so that people have a whole a whole roller coaster of emotions the crazy thing is though for that film we are going independent financing because we're we were so worried about taking the concept and this and the materials as strong as they were directly to buyers because it is it is such a touchy subject right now. Right. So it's interesting. But one of the films that we had a film called Civil War, Who Do We Think We Are, uh, play on our uh, on MSNBC broadcast, and it was about how the Civil War was taught across the country in high schools, and it looked at a bunch of different students. One of the highest rated things. On for MSNBC films was that film. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that stat yeah, but next that, time but I'm that talking to apps, people. I will send you data because Thank that you. film had so many people, and every time we re-air it, it gets a lot of viewers because it is a like again, it is a conversation What's that everyone's having. What's the... So she just went and followed high school students as they how they learned the history of the Civil War, and it was I mean. Like different, different ways. Different people- places are teaching the Civil War in very different ways. And so that was like, sh- I, I'm, I'm from here. And like, you, you would think I wouldn't be shocked about like certain things that are happening, but I was shocked at the differences of how the Civil War is being taught. And that film caused a lot of conversation, still gets a lot of people to watch it. And I think it's, so yes, you have data, strong data to support your film. Fabulous. This is, guys, <laughs> this panel's working out well for me. Um, okay, I realize I have no sense of time. Someone needs to give me a time check because I want to make sure we have time for questions. I don't, my eyes aren't that good. I have five more minutes. Okay, so in that case, does anyone have any questions for our lovely panelists? Because there's a mic there. Come, come on up to the mic. Hello. Hi. Uh, I had a question just about, um, I'm assuming this exists, but I would be interested to know what your favorite resources are for mapping out like the structure of a documentary as it relates to topics and like the stories that you're putting together, you know, is it a three act structure? Is there different structures? Like what's the, what would be the best resources to I mean, honestly, I would say just watch as many docs as you can and because there's no, there's no rule. You don't have, like, some people use the three-act structure. Some people use a six-act structure. Some, you know, um, some people use no structure at all, you know. So, I mean, I think watch the films that you, if, are you making a film right now? I'm getting ready to for my company. And I do, like, three-minute videos that are basically documentaries about projects that right. my company does. So it's like, and I structure... The topics. Right. I would say start Even with a three those. act. A three act, I do think, might be if if this is new to you, yeah. try a three act. We I do a lot of three acts in part because also sometimes when I'm just dealing with topics, I do a three act because that's going to work for a film. But sometimes I also then find, oh, actually, each act has its own two acts, and then you can break it out. Or sometimes I realize, oh, this is actually a three episode series as opposed to a single film. So I think if if this is new to you, maybe just Start writing, but think in terms of three act and then let it go from there. 
but like mapping it out like like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was how would I was assume it would be done, which I haven't read any done any research or books or anything, but I'm assuming I would say I guess maybe not. Map out like a three act structure, but then also think a lot about your characters and just who your main characters are and and why they're important to it. Because the thing about it is you're gonna make a three act structure and that's great, but then you're gonna go start filming and doing interviews and like none of your characters are actually going to do the thing you yeah. hoped they do sometimes. So it's almost better to know who your characters are and what their motivations are as opposed to trying to predict where your story will go. I agree. Okay, cool. <laughs> I saw a periodical, by the way. I loved it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Nice. I didn't pay him, I swear. <laughs> uh, hello. Documentaries today look very different than they did 10, 20, 30 years ago. There was an HBO panel with very talented uh, documentary filmmakers, and they commented on the level of innovation needed for their work to be, you know, stand out and be seen. And I wonder if you guys could speak to that and what that sense of innovation looks like to you. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the one of the ones that, and again, I feel weird almost talking about the history of documentaries because I'm so new at it. But I'll say that one of the films that we're doing right now, a big part of what we're talking about is the style and kind of the, the way that we can use, in the same way that filmic language is used as a storytelling device in scripted, how the filmic language is used as a storytelling device in the unscripted. And this director is very, very cognizant of that. So style on top of what the story is and kind of adding a director's flair to this is a big part of what our sell is for this particular doc. I mean, innovation, I think, is, I think it's just it's key to every business, right? So I think the more we grow, the more we expand, the more creative we become, the better. And I think that a lot of filmmakers are using a bunch of different styles. And we're sometimes we're crossing into worlds where is it documentary still? And those are ethical questions we're having. But I think that it's just fun to see the genre expand. And um, I think the more we innovate, the more the audience will respond. Yeah, I think we're playing a lot with animation. I think there, we, we go back through essentially the archives. And there are a lot of incredible pieces from The New Yorker and Vanity Fair that even 10 years ago you would read and you would think, well, we couldn't do that as a documentary. There's no footage or there's no this or that voice is no longer with us. And I think where documentaries have gone in terms of animation, in terms of recreation, in terms of um, using written materials and, and bringing them to life in new forms, I think that has opened a lot of possibilities for us that's really exciting. And I think the other thing that we continue to really push is just new voices and new types of filmmakers. Um, we're working a lot with directors who have never done docs before, but who have the same sort of passion and who are excited about it. We have Prentice Penny doing his first big doc series right now all about black Twitter. And it's a, you know, a 15 year oral history type piece that was written for Wired. And I think you read that piece and you think like, oh, that's like a VH1, like, best week ever type vibe. Um, but what we're doing with it is really, really different because of the fact that we have a director who is known for scripted coming to the table. So I think the blending of, of talent, the blending of topics, um, the broadening of the types of voices who get to come to the table is all really exciting. Cool. Thank you. Hello, I'm Emily. I'm a digital manager and producer at NASA. And I, so going along the first question, 
um, you know, you go in with this plan. I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit about, you know, how to know, you know, when you're interviewing someone, you learn about all these other threads that could add to the story. Do you have advice or experience with figuring out which of those threads make sense to pursue and like which are going to like lead you on this whole other crazy path that doesn't make sense? I mean, yeah, I think, you know, when you're interviewing people, so get all your material together and then I think you can't really know, to be honest, until you get into the edit bay. And then the story will really start to find itself and you'll you'll say, oh, this expands on this and this idea goes here. I think when you're in the field and you see little nuggets of things that catch your interest, I think it's good to take notes and say, oh, this relates to the theme that I'm going for, the story I'm trying to tell. But that's the hard thing about docs, right, is that you just keep filming and then you put it all together in the edit room and you just look at all this material and pray and work really hard that the story emerges. And you know what? It does. It will. We have a series we are working on right now for HBO Max all about the world of kundalini yoga. And it's a generational story because there's the first generation 3HO from the 60s and 70s. And then there is kind of the 2010, 2020s um, Rama. And it, it is a wild world with a lot of characters and a lot of really compelling story. And we got the first edits and our directors are incredible. But watching the watching the edits, you you could tell that there were so many incredibly important stories that it wasn't actually working as an arc. And so they went back with their editor and they sat down and they really broke it out and they had to they had to kill a lot of babies. Like they had they had to lose a lot of things that they loved and that were powerful. Um but that second round of edits that we all saw, it was a completely transformed film and it had emotion and it had momentum. So I think you're going to have to make hard choices, but it's important to make them because um, clarity is the thing that helps the emotion come through in the right way. And a really strong story that isn't lending towards the momentum can end up actually pulling out the emotion from the whole film. That's the thing that's so exciting to me is you don't know where the story goes sometimes. I remember this what was it, that documentary? It was Capturing the Freedmans, mm. where it was about, like, a birthday clown, and all of a sudden it turned into something totally different. <laughs> and, like, that documentary wouldn't have been anything if it was just a birthday clown documentary. Um, and that's what's so exciting to me about this, this, this filmmaking way, is you, you just kind of follow where the story goes, and some of those stories will be incredible, and you might want to follow those. And so it, it, that's what, it's like, anything's possible. Yeah. Awesome, thank you. <laughs> Clearly for tall people. <laughs> Hi, I'm Don Bonder. I'm with the DeNovo Initiative. We're a private foundation that funds documentaries. They're awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't pay her to say that. Um, in not a news flash for probably everyone in the room, but the documentary film market, especially for those indie films, is not great. Um, and just curious about your thoughts on that and if that's going to have a long-term impact on having new people come and, and want to be independent documentary producers. Yeah, so you're right. The market this year in particular was really bad and is, is pretty bad right now. Um, but I will say I've, I've been that it does ebb and flow. This isn't something that hasn't happened before. There's been years I've had a really great film, an amazing film that was really fun and entertaining and had an insane premiere at a major film festival. And this was about five years ago. And everyone thought it would sell like hotcakes. 
And it didn't. It took a while. It did eventually sell, and it sold the Focus Features, and it's called Bathtubs Over Broadway, and it had an amazing theatrical it's a run. wonderful film. It's a great, I mean, it's an amazing film, but it took us a while to get to a buyer because that particular year, it was a depressed year, and so there weren't a lot of sales. Cut to the following year, where I think there was an $11 million sale for a doc at Sundance. So these things really do ebb and flow, and right now we're in an ebb, and I just say to everybody, hold on. Because next year's going to be a flow. I like all these period references I keep doing. Um, and, and we're going to, and it's going to be okay. But I, again, I go back, the ecosystem is so important. And making sure that we don't inflate cost of films is important too. Because a documentary film that goes for $11 million means that there's probably about eight other films that didn't get bought. And so I think it's super important for buyers to really think about the ecosystem. And it's like my... It is my mantra to get all of us to really go there because let's spend less on more but still make people be able to get their money back because if equity investors don't get their money back, they're probably not going to invest again. So I think that that's to me is like finding those sweet spots of, yeah, look, so one of my friends sold their film for like $6 million. I was really happy for her. You know, I think that's really cool and important too, but I really do want us to try to look at this like we look at other industries and create a space where we people can have middle-class lives. We know we're not striving to have the the house on top of the hill in Beverly Hills, right? We just want to be filmmakers, support our families, and do those kind of things. So I think it's about having these conversations with all the people with power. Hello. Um, my name is Steven Stewart. I'm founder of the company Story Stable, and we produce social impact documentaries. Uh, one of the projects that we've been working on over the past year and a half is this project about a collective of women, Maya women in Central America and the Yucatan, who have come forward to protect an endangered bee species that's very important to the Maya. Um, over the past several years, this movement has been able to enact policies and influence policies that have completely changed the soy industry in Central America, going up against Monsanto, amongst others. Um, and I was wondering if you had any words of wisdom or guidance as it relates to production, promotion, and distribution with the purpose of the film to enact social change, influence government policy, not necessarily make money so much. We have other departments in our company to do that. Um, but really to enact social change. So like the, the entire process of creating the film, going through editing, uh, assembling the story, doing so in a way that's specifically targeted to influence policymakers. If you have any guidance. That'd be yeah. Great. I mean, so I will say um, that it is, it is really important that as you're putting together the film, as you're thinking about production, you are thinking about what are the outlets and the places that are going to want to talk about the film and, and the topics and the people. It's something I think a lot about when I'm doing a project because I'm not only thinking about it from the standpoint of like, okay, if this is a Vanity Fair project, Vanity Fair will promote it. But I'm actually thinking about who's a character in my story that I can convince the New Yorker to write about or I can convince them and Teen Vogue to write about. So I think in the earliest stages, identifying characters or plot points that might make for good press down the line and seeding those conversations early with contacts you have at different outlets is key. Um, taking good behind the scenes material, right? Thinking you, you are the best marketer of your film because you know it the best. So thinking about what are 
those moments and those storylines and even how we put the film together that are going to be compelling. I think there's a lot of incredible doc projects. I mean, just listening to Todd even talk, like the story of how a doc comes to be is often the best way to sell a doc when it gets made. So thinking about that now in terms of what you guys are going through, how you are making it, what are the interesting anecdotes and narratives that you can use later is always, I think, a great way to kind of break through the noise of just whatever the topic of your doc is because it is all part of kind of the the sales package that you have for it. Sure. Thank you. Hello, uh, I'm Walter Jacob. I'm with uh, Wondrium, and um, we're a company that um, branched out in the last couple of years from uh, an educational media streaming platform uh, into documentaries. Um, and I'm just interested if you could all address the subject of um, the, the the current state and the, the future, as you see it, of distribution for documentaries. Um, I find myself overwhelmed when I look at the number of options, the number of, of outlets for documentaries on streaming platforms. I mean, you, you could just look forever. Um, and it, you know, it's sort of inspiring and frightening at the same time to be overwhelmed by that, that many choices. And there's obviously, to my mind, a kind of a danger that things can kind of get lost in the noise. Um, so can you talk to the the, the current state and the future of distribution? Well, the future of distribution is hard to know. I mean, I, you know, I don't think anyone saw the rise of, you know, maybe some of the you know, people who made less money on them saw the rise of the streamer. But, I mean, I, I want more platforms <laughs> because the more platforms we have, the more films that get seen. But you're right, they can get lost in the noise. And so wherever you put your film, I think it's really important that they're a really good partner because, you know, if you have, if you're one among many in a, in a place, like a cer certain streamers, it, if they have about 20 docs that they're promoting, then yeah, you might be the one that they don't promote as much. Um, but I don't know what's going to, I mean, we've actually lost a few streamers recently. Um, we've lost a few platforms that were really important and vital platforms, in my opinion. I think CNN was, CNN Films was, you know, a great place for films. You know, I know that's our main competitor, so that might be weird for me to say, but they made amazing films and they were really important to the documentary industry. And it's really sad that they don't have a platform anymore. And, you know, there's some other places going. So I personally want to see more platforms emerge and maybe they'll be different. Maybe they'll be more exciting and innovative and, and uh, have a, a way of getting out more films to more audiences. Yeah, I think, um, I think, I'm not a futurist either, but I happen to think that in the immediate future, there's going to be some consolidation. But I think about the evolution of distribution and kind of how there always seems to crop up more ways for distri for just distributing content. So whether it was initially your theatrical and your three networks turned into multiple networks, turned into cable, turned into streaming, turned into podcasting, radio, there's... There's t so, you know, as, as storytellers, I think I can look towards the future optimistically and I'd say I think there's going to be a ton of ways that content will be distributed. How to find that content, that is, uh, I don't know where you went, but I'm just going to look at you. There you go. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the key issue. Um, totally separate non sequitur plug for what it's worth. There's an app called Q, Q-U-E-U-E, -E, where it organizes every single thing you're watching, 
It tells you where to watch it. If you want to find something, you go in and search for it, and then you queue it and put it in your queue, and it tells you exactly where you can see it if you have to pay for it, if it's for free. So just there, a free piece of advice. That's very useful advice. Um, I'm going to download that app. Uh, I also I think promotion is going to continue to be a massive part of it, right? I, I, I agree having more platforms is better, um, but it really then is incumbent on the filmmakers and the platforms to make sure people know where to find it. And I think it's why you see more and more that the promotion, especially of, of docs and doc series, is such a short window to release. You aren't, you aren't promoting those six months out. You're promoting those two weeks out. Because when people see, oh, there's a new film, they want to go watch it immediately. And so I think you'll see more and more of that tight release window and promotion window. Um, but look, it is, it is the thing I talk to people the most about is Condé Nast, which is like, we're going to make this film, but we're also going to make sure people can find this film because I have a lot of magazines and websites that can do that. And I think you're going to see more and more Which of is that. amazing. <laughs> like that is like, if you have that infrastructure, like that's like, I mean, that's why you would want to do like, because she's also awesome. But I mean that at your, those resources, those marketing resources at your fingertips, you don't get everywhere. So I think that that's amazing. Yeah. And so I think thinking about that more and, and what you can bring to that end um, is going to be, is going to be an important part that differentiates certain filmmakers. Hi, my name is Sean. Wow, that is loud. <laughs> uh, I have two films out right now, one on Amazon and one on Hulu, but I had a question about formatting. Uh, my next two projects, one's a docu-series about the office and the fandom when it comes to that, and then another one is about Otto Frank, which is Anne Frank's father. What sort of things do y'all see when it comes to this is a time frame we're looking for for a certain show. If it's going to run on television, we look for a, a doc like this length. How do y'all handle that sort of aspect of it? So I am the worst for my my programming people really don't like me sometimes because I am very filmmaker friendly, and so I'm always like, oh, so you want it to be five minutes more than we allow? That's eh, fine, and then they I like totally pay for it later. Um, so look, for broadcast, we do have a time, a clock, it's 89 minutes, right? And and it does help a lot if we can keep the film to that length um, because it really helps for re-airs, right? Because ad dollars, by the way, ads are coming to your streamers, just so you all know. You're all going to be watching commercials again real yeah, soon. We're just going back to TV. Yeah, it's, it's just, just TV on your computers TV. and on your phones. Um, so so everyone get, because I cannot tell you on when I air things with commercials, I on when Twitter was a thing still, people would tweet about how mad they were that it wasn't just playing. I was like, I don't get to make documentaries unless I have ad dollars. Ad dollars matter. Um, but I think, you know, formatting, I think for streamers doesn't, if you're talking technical format. Um, yeah, in a sense of, do you, do you even look at like a TV hour for Oh, content? yeah. See, I'm really, I get to look at all, like, I'll, I'll air a 20 minute short, I'll air a broadcast hour, an hour and a half. And like I said, I've even done films, Civil War was a film that ended up going a little over a two hour block. And so then I had to find a short film to complement it, which was about monuments. And so now I have a thing that goes into a three hour block. I can do it. I just have to, I have to be creative. And again, my programming people end up really not liking me, but you can find a way with broadcast to work in that's what's best for your film. Not everybody will. Some broadcasters won't, and because it is annoying for people to do, but but I try. 
we're seeing a lot that the market wants three to four episodes is really is is a good sweet spot for a limited series. But it, I and it's actually going back to the three act structure. One of the reasons I like a three act structure, and we'll do a lot of our pitch materials as a three act structure, but not entirely make it clear if it's a feature or a limited series because we've pitched features that have then sold on the promise that we can actually do it as a three-part limited series instead. And I've pitched three-part limited series that the person has then been like, well, actually, my feature team really likes this. Can you do it as a feature doc? So our- The answer is always yes. The answer is always Always yes. <laughs> there's, there's always a, re- a reason and a way to make it work. Um, so I think flexibility is a lot of, of what- we go into right now when we're talking to, to buyers. Um, but, but in terms of like actual runtime length, yeah, we have some stuff that we're doing for broadcast partners where we, we have to have those ad breaks. And I respect that because this is not a hobby. This is a business. Um, and then we have projects that are just straight for streamers where, um, the runtime is simply based off of how long before you get bored. Awesome. Thanks. (laughs) Hi, my name is Sasha Reist, and I'm a film and television student at the University of Arizona. Um, and I just wanted to ask you all like, what your biggest advice was for young and aspiring filmmakers, especially how to connect with funding resources and getting your projects and ideas out there and how to make your stories when you're just starting out. The, um, the piece of advice that I always give to students coming in to my office from my alma mater is the technology allows to make anything right now. Um, when I was coming up in the business, you know, you had to have a camera with film in it and now you, my iPhone's plugged in over there, (laughs) so I can't use it, but, um, you just need an iPhone. So as a filmmaker, you have kind of the, the world as a possibility then you can make, I, I would, my advice is make films, whatever those films are, as many as you can, and just kind of get your creative voice honed. And I will add to that because I actually was just talking to a filmmaker yesterday, and I think this is such a great story. So the the New Yorker Shorts program, which I will plug as mm-hmm. having five nominated films for the Oscars tonight, is a is a really good program that almost always goes to festivals and finds projects. Um, there is a film that will be debuting this year that literally was just submitted on the New Yorker website because you can submit there. Um, And they submitted it on a whim. They never thought they would hear back. And the New Yorker team said, this is actually the first doc we've ever acquired simply from the submissions on the website. That's cool. But what I love about it is it means that they've actually been watching all those submissions for years. And they finally found the one. And I think that's a really important story of like, you don't know who's going to be watching. You don't know where the opportunity is going to come. So you just have to make as much as you can and be open to putting yourself out there and be open to the fact that like there will be rejection. There will be very, very annoying and frustrating moments. But if this was an easy job and an easy industry, then everyone would be doing it. So if you love it and you're passionate about it, then you just have to keep putting yourself out there and the right opportunities will come together. There's a film festival that I've been a judge at for, I want to say 10 years. It's called the Kids Film It Festival, where it's kids of different ages just making films. Some of them are non-scripted. Some of them are scripted and they're all shorts. 
And some of these movies are legitimately incredible. And some of them I've seen and have sent them to agents and managers for representation. So these are just kids with cameras uh, and phones. Awesome. Thank you. I think we, oh, I think we, I, this is, this is your last question. I'm the last one. I'm, I'm, I'm so very special. sorry. <laughs> um, my name is Ali Ortega. I helped edit the Mary Tyler Moore documentary. That'll be. Congratulations. Tomorrow. Shameless plug. But, uh, um, so over the past year and a half working on this doc, I've been really thinking a lot about authenticity and documentary. And especially because so many more companies are buying docs. So many more docs are being, um, created these days. And so one of the, you know, struggles that I kind of ran into is that we're trying to tell this story about this woman who is not here to tell us this story. So how do you guys kind of handle that pressure of holding on to someone's story and being authentic to them while also making something that is, you know, marketable and a broad audience will want to watch it? There's a 45 minute conversation <laughs> that I could have. Um, no, look, it's, I, I think what the very short answer I will give to this is that the most important thing for me is protecting the brands I work for and their journalistic integrity. Mm -hmm. And I have lost projects because I do not pay for interviews. I have lost projects because I do not give editorial control to subjects. Um, and I've turned down projects because uh, I don't have the right set of characters to tell it in a way that is actually worth telling. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you you in your gut know what is authentic and what is not nine times out of ten, and your collaborators will or the brands you work for will. Um, and every time I've lost a thing, I always say I look forward to watching this because I know someone's going to go make it and they're going to sell it for a lot of money. But like at the end of the day, all I have is my own integrity, and it is more important to me to you know respect the hundred year old New Yorker brand than simply get that next doc project on Amazon. I also think you're already there. You asked the question, you know, I think if you're an, your editor, you're, you know, congratulations, by the way, I've Thank heard you. really great things about the film. Um, but if you're asking that question, then you're in the right heart space to be doing that anyway. You know, and I think that filmmakers, a lot of documentary filmmakers are in that heart space anyway as well. And just, you know, make sure you're telling, you have to tell the true story. And the true story for people is often messy and often, like, we're all messy, right? So I know sometimes we get uncomfortable because we have to tell the darkest parts of people's lives in documentaries, but that's okay. Cause like, you know, we're all, we're all complicated and messy and beautiful and those things. But as long as you're telling the truth and to, I mean, that's really the point. Like as long as you're telling the truth and it's factual, you're doing the right thing, you know? And yes, and entertain people as well. Yeah. Right. But she was very entertaining. She was. She really was. <laughs> cool. Okay. Thank you everybody. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you.